page 978, I think, is where you will find John chapter 3. passage that is so well known. There was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher, for no one could perform these signs that you do unless God were with him. Jesus replied, I assure you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But how can anyone be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked him. Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Jesus answered, I assure you, unless someone is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. How can these things be? asked Nicodemus. Are you a teacher of Israel and don't know these things, Jesus replied? I assure you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. If I've told you about things that happen on earth and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about things of heaven? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven. The Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world that he might condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. This, then, is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who practices wicked things hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. After this, Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptised. John also was baptising in Enon, near Salim, because there was plenty of water there. And people were coming and being baptised since John had not yet been thrown into prison. And then a dispute arose between John's disciples and a Jew about purification. So they came to John and told him, Rabbi, 
The one you testified about, the one who was with you across the Jordan, is baptizing, and everyone is flocking to him. John responded, No one can receive a single thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I've been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom, but the groom's friend, who stands by and listens for him, rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth is earthly and speaks in earthly terms. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard. Yet no one accepts his testimony. The one who has accepted his testimony has affirmed that God is true. For God sent him and he speaks God's words since he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hands. The one who believes in the son has eternal life. But the one who refuses to believe in the son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Father God, we have so much to be thankful for. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for uh, a roof over our head tonight, for the chairs to sit on, for friends and for family. We thank you, Lord, for your gracious provision of all our needs. And we, we thank you for your word, the scriptures, which are living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. Uh, we thank you for the opportunity to sit under the, under the word tonight and to hear you speak. And I pray, Lord, that you would speak. I pray your spirit would move in this place tonight and take my words and whatever is true and plant them in our hearts. Lord, please would you change us and mold us and shape us by your word and spirit tonight. In Jesus' name. We're in John chapter 3. I've been reading this week about a, a man called uh, George Whitfield. Have you heard of George Whitfield? Anyone here heard of George Whitfield? A few hands going up. Uh, George Whitfield is, is a, an Englishman. He was an Englishman. He was around in the 1700s. Uh, he was described as the greatest evangelist since the first century. It's a pretty high accolade, isn't it? The greatest evangelist since the first century. Two things about Whitfield that struck me. Uh, one is his big voice, his booming voice. As, as a preacher, he had this voice. Now, before the ages of microphones and amplification, he had this voice that could control a, a crowd of up to 100,000 people. That's like, it's like Telstra Stadium. It's like Homebush. One man preaching to 100,000 people. His voice was described as a mixture of a, an organ and a flute and a harp all blended together. This booming voice, apparently when he preached, you could hear him up to 800 meters away. That was Whitfield, a preacher with a big voice. The second thing about Whitfield was he was a preacher with a, a big heart. 
a big heart for the lost souls. He didn't just preach once a week. He didn't preach once a day. He preached three to four times a day on the street corners, in the marketplace, in the open fields. Why did he do that? Because he had a heart for the lost. He was convinced the most important thing that anybody could hear was the good news of Jesus Christ and him crucified. He met Jesus in Oxford, part of the Holy Club, and he gave the rest of his life to preaching the gospel. He preached at Harvard University once, and apparently that night, every student and every professor in that room gave their life to Christ. He died aged 55, and as an estimate, he led over half a million people to put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Extraordinary man. If you read his sermons, they're all quite similar. They're actually all the same message. He spent his life preaching the same message again and again and again and again. A very simple message. The the, the message is basically this. You must be born again. And you imagine him sort of standing in the field. You must be born again. You must be born again. You must be born again. Apparently he preached that sermon 18,000 times. One critic was known to have gone to Mr. Whitfield and said, Mr. Whitfield, why don't you preach a different sermon? Why do you preach the same sermon? You must be born again. And George Whitfield looked at the man and said, because people must be born again. And you must be born again. And you know, Whitfield's sermon is basically... Our text tonight, it's Jesus' words in John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verse 7, Jesus says, Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. What is surprising there is that Jesus is talking to one man, Nicodemus. But the you in verse 7 is plural. You, plural, must be born again. Every man, every woman, every child must be born again. They must be born again. That word must is a necessity. It's an essential. It's a a non-negotiable. And Jesus is saying that every man, every woman, every boy, every girl of every nation must be, what? Born again. Now, I know some Christians are embarrassed by that phrase, born again. They're not ashamed to be a Christian, but they wouldn't describe themselves as a a born-again Christian. It's kind of a bit too serious, a bit too intense, a bit too out there, a bit too wacky. And Jesus says, if you've put your trust in me, if you've come to the cross and you've sat at the cross, if you're trusting in my death on your behalf, you are born again. You might not like the label, but you are born again. Now, isn't that the message that our city needs to hear? Not a message about being good, not a message about being nice, not a message about being religious, not a message about coming to church. But the message you need to hear is you must be, what? Born again. 
a chaplain to the forces was preaching on this passage one Sunday morning, and that was his text, you must be born again. He had this great phrase, he says, being born again is, is not about turning over a new leaf, it's getting a new life. Not about turning over a new leaf, but getting a new life. At the end of the sermon, a man came to talk to the preacher. It's always nice when people talk to the preacher. And the man came to the preacher and said, God has found me out this morning. I've been a preacher for the last 30 years. I'm the archdeacon of this diocese. But I've never been born again. I spent my life trusting in my good works. I spent my life trusting in my religion. But I've never been born again. And the chaplain sat with the archdeacon and led him to Christ. And my question before we look at the text in detail tonight is, have you been born again? Have you been born again? Now, I'm not asking, do you like church? I'm not asking, do you like reading your Bible? I'm not asking, do you like praying or like singing? I'm not asking, do you like doing good things? I'm saying, have you been born again? Have you sat at the foot of the cross and looked at the Lord Jesus Christ and said, thank you for dying for me? Have you put your trust in Jesus? Let's look at John chapter 3. Simple message, you must be born again. Let's meet Nicodemus. There was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So who is this man, Nicodemus? He's a Pharisee. That, that just means that he's religious. But when you read, read the word Pharisee, please don't think baddies. The Pharisees were kind of the, the evangelical believers. They were the, the very religious folk who took the Bible seriously. They were the Bible scholars. They were the sincere Jews. They were the ones who would know their Bibles from cover to cover. They were the ones who had high moral standards. They were the ones who cared for the poor and cared for the needy. Always at the temple, always praying. They were the religious people. And this man, Nicodemus, verse 1, he is a ruler. He is the leader. He's kind of the, the senior pastor of a church. And he meets Jesus in verse 2. Nicodemus came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher. For no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. Let me ask you, what do you think Nicodemus' attitude is towards Jesus? How does he approach Jesus? Look at the Bible, what do you think? Someone tell me? He's respectful. He calls him rabbi. It means teacher. He's respectful of Jesus. What else is it? He's curious. He's seen the signs. He wants to find out who Jesus really is. He's a bit confused though, isn't he? He just thinks that Jesus is a teacher, not the Messiah. And I think that's the play on words of that word night in verse 2. Nicodemus comes at night. Yes, it's night time, but actually Nicodemus is in the darkness at this point. He hasn't seen the light of Christ yet. 
And the irony is that Nicodemus is kind of assessing Jesus, but actually Jesus is assessing Nicodemus. Because Jesus speaks in verse 3 and says, I assure you, Nicodemus, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless you're born again, you cannot enter into that relationship with God. Unless you're born again, you cannot have eternal life. What does that phrase, born again, mean? I saw an advert for a a born-again VW. It's kind of revamped and restyled and the latest and the best to sort of sort out all all uh, all the errors of the old model. What Jesus means. Jesus is not talking about making a few changes in your life. He's not talking about pulling up your socks and trying harder. He's not talking about improving behavior patterns. It's a bit like going to New Zealand after the earthquake in Christchurch and seeing the devastation and thinking, oh, I know, I'll take my drill and I'll take my putty and my sticky tape and I can fix up this city. You can't, can you? You need a total new city, a total rebuild. It's a bit like you walk into a job interview and saying, I've got the qualifications, I've got the work experience, and I say, you haven't got the job. And you say to them, what can I do? I'll do another degree. I'll I'll get some more work experience. And they say to you, no, you have to come back as a totally new person. That's what it means to be born again. Not a new leaf, but a new life, a new heart, a new start. You're a new person. And Jesus is kind of saying to to, to Nicodemus, you may be a Pharisee, but that won't help you. You may be religious, that won't help you. You may be kind, that won't help you. I reckon that phrase, born again, it kind of, it shatters our pride, doesn't it? Because if Nicodemus, who is the, the most religious, the most knowledgeable, the most moral, the most man of integrity and great works, if he can't be right with God, if he can't have eternal life without being born again, what hope have you got? What hope have I got? As I read John 3, it's almost like if Jesus was standing here tonight, he would look at you and he would say, you may be the most successful person in your company, but you must be born again still. You might have more degrees than anybody else in this room tonight, but you must be born again still. You might have the biggest house on the lower North Shore, but you must be born again. You might be the nicest, kindest, most moral person in this room tonight, but you must be, what? Born again. Do you get it? Nicodemus is shocked in verse 4. How can anyone be born when he's old? He doesn't get it. Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? He, he is not saying, Jesus, you're stupid. He's saying, Jesus, that is impossible. And you and I should be thinking that. It's impossible for you and I to be born again. We just can't do it. We cannot get a new heart ourselves, can we? Let me highlight three things about being born again. Firstly, it's a work of God's Spirit. Not my work and not your work. Being born again is a work of God's Spirit. 
verse 5. Jesus said, I assure you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh. Whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't be amazed, I told you, you must be born again. He's saying, if you have an earthly birth, you're born of the flesh. That gives you an earthly life. But if you want eternal life, you must be born of the Spirit. When you were born, you became a child of a parent. If you want to be a child of God, you must be born again. That's what Jesus is saying in verse 5. You must be born of water and the Spirit. You must be cleansed of your sin and have a new heart given by the Spirit. And Jesus is kind of picking up Ezekiel 36. Let me just read Ezekiel 36 to you, verse 25 to 27. Ezekiel says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you'll be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities. I'll give you a new heart and put a spirit within you. I'll remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I'll place my spirit within you. And now do you get it? If you're born of the water and the spirit, you've been cleansed of your sin, you've got a new heart, you've got the spirit of God living in you, and you can't do that. There's nobody in this room tonight who can do that, cleanse himself, give himself a new heart. That's the work of God, not your work. Let me ask you, if you have been born again, if you're sitting here tonight as a Christian, how do you feel when I tell you that it's God's work, not your work? We should be humble, shouldn't we? Why me? What was it about me? There's nothing about me that's deserving. Why would God give me a new heart? Why would God cleanse me? We're supposed to be totally humbled by that. Do you know who the hardest people are to this message? Do you know who the people are who find it hardest to hear this message that you must be born again? Good people, successful people, and religious people. Because good people think they're good enough. And successful people have spent their whole life achieving stuff, and they think, oh, I can achieve that. I can make it to heaven. But religious people, they're deluded where they, they think they know God. They know about God, but they don't actually know God personally. They have no relationship with God. Do you know why Whitfield preached in the fields on street corners? Have a guess. Because the church kicked him out. They refused to let him preach from the pulpit because the clergy hated his message that you must be born again. Clergy, uh, Whitfield once said, apparently, that, that two shoe cobblers knew more about Christianity than all the clergy of the UK put together. He was probably right. I find this totally liberating, you know. It's not my job to convert people, it's God's job. That's what Jesus says then in verse 8. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sounds, but you, you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Jesus says, look at the wind. You, you can't control the wind. You don't determine where the wind blows. You just see the effects. You hear it. You watch it. You see the impact. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. 
And Jesus is saying there that, that, that you can't control the Spirit. You can't determine who the Spirit is going to choose and work in and bring to new life. Now, I can preach this message tonight to, what, 100 people? And you can hear exactly the same message. And some people here will be moved to tears. And other people will, hit, will, will sit here bored out of their brains. I've got no control over that. That's okay. That's the Spirit's work. And it's totally liberating because you just see the impact of the Spirit. So you, you see people who have been born again because they do change. It's like they've got a new life. Uh, they're humble. They're joyful. They're striving to live to please God. So being born again is the work of the Spirit, not the work of human beings. But Nicodemus still doesn't get it, verse 9. How can these things be, he asked. I don't understand, he's saying. And I love how blunt and direct Jesus is in verse 10. Are you a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? He's basically saying... You're the Reverend Doctor Professor Emeritus in Theology. Are you that stupid? Why can't you understand these things? It's very simple. You must be born again. And then it moves from dialogue to monologue. As Jesus tells Nicodemus how to be born again. How are you born again? Just believing in the Son. Just believing in, the G in Jesus. Verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven. No one's gone to heaven except the one who descended from heaven, that is Jesus. He came from heaven to earth. He's got the authority to speak about these things. And then Jesus refers to that odd, uh, the, that odd incident in Numbers 21, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness. You ever read that passage before in Scripture? In the middle of Numbers, you've got the Israelites, and they're, they're wandering in the desert, they're wandering in the wilderness, and they're, they hate God, and they're rebelling against God, and they're whinging about how bad the food is and how bad God is, and God sends a plague of snakes. And when they're bitten by a snake, they die. And so they cry out to God, help me, God, help me, God. And God does help them very graciously. And God says to Moses, just make a, a bronze snake, an image of a snake, and put it on a pole. And if, if an Israelite looks at the pole... What's the promise? They'll live. They're cured. Now let me ask you, what, what did the Israelites do? They didn't pray more. They didn't read their Bibles more. They didn't sing more. They didn't give more. They weren't kinder. They, they just looked. They just looked at the pole. They took God as his word. They looked at the pole, looked at the snake, and they lived. And Jesus takes that and he says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so look at verse 14. The Son of Man must be lifted up. Jesus must go to the cross. Jesus must be killed. Jesus must be crucified. So that, verse 15, everyone, every man, every woman, every child who, who trusts, who believes in Jesus will have eternal life. See, what is Jesus asking us to do to, to be born again? He's not asking to pray more or to read your Bibles more or come to church more or to give more. He's just saying, look to Jesus. Trust in the cross. Humble yourself at the foot of the cross. Look to your Savior. Believe he died for you. Believe he's taken the punishment for you. And you will be born again. 
The next question. If the work of the Spirit is about believing in the Son, but why? Why would God do that? Because of God's love. Because of the Father's love for you. Look at verse 16. We've heard this so many times, haven't we? It just loses its impact. The most famous verse in history. For God loved the world in this way. That's why I like the Holman. It doesn't say, for God so loved the world. Because when you think, for God so loved the world, you think it's the magnitude of God's love. It's a, it's a massive love. For God so loved the world. It's not what it means. For God loved the world in this way. This is the way that God loved the world. And when you read the word world here, please don't just think cosmos. Think people. Think people who rebel against God. Think people who disobey God. Think people who ignore their God. And then get the shock of verse 16. For God loved people who reject him. God loves people who turn their back on him. God loves people who disobey him. And God loved them in this way. He gave his one and only son. Does that shock you? That your heavenly father looks at you and he knows you and he loves you enough to give the most precious thing in the world to save you. Your heavenly father loves you enough to give the most precious thing in his world, his own son. And so he sends him to earth and he sends him to the cross he sends him to die for you. So that, verse 16, everyone who believes in him, just trust in him. And you won't go to hell. You won't face eternal punishment. You will not perish. But you'll have eternal life. For God didn't send his son into the world. Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. grasp that? Do you grasp the, the magnitude of God's love for you personally? Just think about yourself for the moment. You know your heart. You know the way you've ignored God and rebelled against God and the way you've disobeyed God or you've just ignored him occasionally. And he knows that and he looks at you and he says, I love you enough to send my son to die for for you. Let me read from Whitfield. They kicked him out of the church. So he went to the pits. The miners came up out of the pits, their faces blackened with coal. I stood on a small hill, afraid of what I was about to do. I pitched my voice about a hundred yards away to the group of colliers walking towards me. And I called out, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You must be born again. The miners stopped and stared. They came closer and listened as I told them a story. About 200 men gathered as I spoke of hell. Hell being as black as their pit and the certainty of judgment. I talked about Jesus who was the friend of sinners. And I spoke of the cross 
and I spoke of the love of God and I brushed tears from my eyes. And suddenly I noticed tears came from the eyes of a young man on my right. The tears were forming a pale streak on his grimy face. I saw the same thing happen to an old man on my left and then more and more of them. I saw God at work saving souls. The next day about 2,000 people came out. Five days later I preached to 5,000 people. By the end of the week the crowd was at 20,000 people. And God graciously saved souls. This week I've been I've been begging of God. I've been begging that God would save souls this weekend. I've been begging that God would bring new life to lost souls this weekend. I've been asking God if there are people at Church by the Bridge who sit here week in, week out, who read their Bibles, who occasionally pray, who occasionally sing, but don't yet know Jesus as a Lord and Saviour. I've been asking that God would work in your heart tonight, opening your eyes and bringing you to the foot of the cross, that you leave here with new life, that you leave here a different person, that you leave here born again. I can't do that, but God can. And you know, I could preach the same message week after week. You must be born again. You must be born again. And I get two different responses. Some people will just refuse to believe. That's what Jesus said. Verse 36, he said, The one who believes in the Son has eternal life. You do have eternal life. But the one who refuses to believe in the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. He or she is heading to hell. And then I was asking, you know, why would people refuse to believe? If Jesus is saying to you tonight, I'm offering you forgiveness. I love you. I've died for you. Just trust in me and you'll get to heaven. Why on earth would anybody refuse to accept him? And then Jesus bluntly tells you in verse 19, because light has come into the world, but people love darkness. Jesus steps into the world and he reveals God, but people don't like Jesus because... He reveals their darkness and they like their evil deeds. Jesus just so blunt. He says, people refuse me because people don't like what I, I teach. People don't want to change. People love doing what they're doing. They're like little insects that love the darkness. And that's sad. But we shouldn't be surprised. But the other response is very simple in verse 18. If you believe in Jesus, you're not condemned. If you believe in Jesus, you have eternal life. So let me ask you one more time. Have you been born again? I'm not asking, do you come to church? Do you read your Bible? Do you pray? Do you sing? Have you been born again? Have you met Jesus at the foot of the cross? And you said, thank you for dying for me. When was that? When were you born again? I was reading a newspaper a few weeks ago and read about a 17-year-old boy who drowned. A 
far in vain. I was thinking, you know, that morning when he woke up age 17, do you think he thought about death and heaven and hell and God and Jesus? Probably not. Yet by the end of the day, he was meeting his maker. And then I thought if I had been that 17-year-old boy and I died that day, then I would be in hell today. Because at age 17, I didn't know Jesus. I got my life mapped out. I knew what I wanted to do in life. I was going to do my A-levels in England and go to university and then join a boy band and be a famous pop star and then get a decent job and then retire early and then travel the world. But God and Jesus and heaven and hell wasn't on my radar at all. And then you stop and think, wow, how gracious has God been to me? Age 20. Age 20, he just opened my eyes to Jesus and showed me how much God loved me and showed me a love of a father I'd never experienced before, an unconditional love, and took me to the foot of the cross and humbled me. So I just said, here's my life. Take my life, Lord. Thank you for dying for me. So when was it for you? When were you born again? Let me pray. Jesus said you must be born again. Father God, thank you that it's not our good works and it's not our kind deeds and it's not our Bible knowledge and it's not our church going that saves us. Thank you that Jesus saves. Please humble us daily at the foot of your cross. Please rid us of our pride. Please remind us daily how much you love us. And like Whitfield, Lord, please give us that big heart for the lost and that big voice that keeps on preaching Christ crucified. In Jesus' name.